Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode two. I'm your host, Travis Streb. Today, we're talking to my friend, Shannon Lepke. I spent a few years working with Shannon while she was at Manitoba Public Insurance as the executive in charge of HR. It was funny because every single trip I made to Winnipeg, I was always sure to get some time with Shannon and our conversations would always bleed over the hour I was given. We had some really rich conversations about leadership, about culture, her work, and my work. I always walked away from those conversations uh, thinking bigger and differently about my work and the world. And so these conversations are the reason why I knew she'd be a great guest for the Men at Work podcast. So as I mentioned, Shannon was the chief HR officer at Manitoba Public Insurance. She was there for the better part of a decade. And today she runs C Coaching and is the host of Red Chair, a women's leadership program that's based in Winnipeg. Definitely go check it out if you haven't heard of it already. So Shannon was super candid in sharing her views um, as an educator, an executive, and now a mentor and coach to female leaders in Winnipeg and beyond. We talked about her experiences leading a decade-long culture change initiative at MPI, And she opened up about what it means to transform an organization by focusing on people, creativity, and purpose. It was great, our conversation took a nice turn. We did get a chance to talk about the next tranche of gender in the workplace. And, uh, you know, both her and I have daughters and we talked about, you know, what would need to change over the next decade to have workplaces that we'd really love for our daughters to be part of. We also talked about the differences between men and women when it comes to language and swearing in particular. And we even touched on the socialization of boys and girls and what that manifests down the road in terms of corporate leadership and workplaces. This is an excellent cast. I know you're going to love it. Let's dive in. Let's talk about men at work. Before before we dig into a lot of this content, I think it would be helpful. I mean, you and I have known each other for a few years. We've been, mm-hmm. I'd say, more or less coaching each other for the entire time, which has been awesome. Yeah, it's been great. Maybe you can give my listeners some background on uh, where you come from and and sort of, you know, what's your what's your love story, as it were, with leadership, culture, and personal development? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, I've been doing a lot of reflection on that in the last several months, and I think I can summarize my experience with three themes, whether it was in education or in a crown or now in my own business. And the themes are leadership, learning, and change. And uh, I've realized, and it's been reinforced over the years, that I love to play in the people sandbox. And... um, I think that organizations uh, are only as strong as the people they have. And it sounds kind of cliche, but I think it's really true. And, um, and I was fortunate to start, I would say in education where I got to work with some really um, passionate educators who wanted to help shape and form secondary students so they could go out into the world and make the world better. And so my experience with change was around working with those uh, educators and those administrators about how they were gonna go about doing that 
and really helping them think through how they needed to show up every day for those students to do that. So during that process, I had um, exposure to some of the leading thought leaders in North America around educational change and improvement which was great learning for me and helped me really think about organizations from a systemic perspective. So while I believe that people are, are critical to organizational success, I believe that if you don't understand or take time to understand the system that you're in, you're gonna be really limited. And I think that's the case for both leaders as well as employees. And then I had the good fortune of being able to take what I had learned in the education system around people and change and planning and evaluation and take that into a large crown corporation here in Winnipeg. And uh, I entered that crown corporation uh, probably in the earlier stages of about a decade of business transformation. And uh, they really had a clear vision of how to evolve insurance, which may not sound super exciting, <laughs> but we did some pretty cool things. And I got to play in the people sandbox in all of that. And being in a corporation of 2000 people with lots of 30 plus year employees, uh, change doesn't happen overnight. And uh, and I just, I like walking alongside and also leading individuals and teams um, when they're experiencing change. Because change, while you may be changing what you do at work every day, uh, you're changing who you are as you do it, whether people realize it or not. And I think that's one of the things maybe that leaders miss sometimes. It's not always about the processes it's about who people are as individuals and what they have to bring to work every day, uh, both for the organization to be successful and for individuals to have meaning. So I got to spend a decade doing that. And uh, I think what I'm describing is the culture of an organization and uh, the systems and the people and the leadership. And uh, while I think culture is a buzzword right now that a lot of people are using, I think that to really shift it and understand it takes a very um, strategic and um, creative and purposeful approach and has to be led from the top, but also has to be driven from the bottom so that there's an education. When I worked with schools, we talked about uh, bottom up and top down in terms of changing organizations. And that's the approach that we took uh, at Manitoba Public Insurance when I was there, and um, and we got results. So um, yeah, I've just I've been really lucky. I've worked really hard, but I've been really fortunate in the opportunities I've had, in the mentors that I've had along the way who have stretched me as well. Um, and I think I've been able to influence a few people along the way as well. So it's been fun. Yeah, I mean you've influenced a lot of people along the way, myself included, um, and. I think what's what's also compelling about your story is you, know, you came in under the sort of umbrella of HR culture people, but when you left the organization, I mean, you look at what the business groups you were managing, some of them had nothing to do necessarily, you know, under the people side. So I think you, you really proved that 
you know, you can actually transform an insurance business by focusing on people. And I find your change story fascinating because when I think about the work of, of this generation, it, it is going to be the next tranche of the kind of lean in movement. Mm. And you're right. There's a lot of entrenched thinking around uh, gender in the workplace and it's, it may be a, a long journey. I think there's, it's, you know, we're already on it and there's been a ton of progress, but also some stagnation. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like when you talk about not necessarily people that have been in organizations for too long, but let's say thinking that's indentured, what did you notice when you were, um, you know, at MPI or in your, in your current role working as an executive coach, like what kind of entrenched thinking were you seeing, especially on the gender side? Well, I think I'm not going to answer your question directly right now. (laughs) I think that there is a keen desire well, clearly, and for many women, that they want opportunity to be able to show their stuff and do what they know that they can do. I do think that there are more men that are prepared to share the space. I'll say it that way. But I do think we have a long way to go. Because I've said I have two girls. They're 21 and 19. And my 21-year-old studying some of this in her psychology classes. And I said, <laughs> I said to her, you know, we were talking about this when I was doing my undergrad degree, and that was a long time ago. So I do think that we're quite entrenched still in our stereotypes about who does what kind of job. I mean, being an insurance company, was had, we had physical damage claims that was starting to shift in terms of how many women were involved in some of those roles. But definitely, when I started there, it was male-dominated at the leadership level, for sure. I was actually reflecting one of the um, projects that I did when I, yeah, I guess when I first got there, it was on the organizational change management team. And we were transitioning the claim centers where people brought their cars when they were in an accident to get assessed and stuff. We were transitioning those to service centers. And the service centers had more front counter options for the customers. They could come in and do their insurance. We did our driver testing out of those centers. So it was more of a, they didn't like us to use one-stop shop, but that's what it was. (laughs) And I remember uh, working with the leadership for the claim centers and some of the sessions that I led with those service or those claim center managers in a room, and when I think back to it, there might have been one or two women in a room of 15 or more. And and that's just the way it was. And so to, I think we were pretty deliberate in trying to have more women move into those roles and to support them, but there were definite, definite thinking about who should be in those roles. And it's, I, not critical of those individuals I think it's just the way they've been socialized and that's the way things had been and um and now I would there's more women in those roles for sure but it was and I remember sitting in a room with those service center or claim center managers and there were lots of crossed arms and why are do why are we talking about how are people going to transition about this change and why are we talking about how I need to lead and But over time, as I think they saw the benefit of those conversations, 
the dialogue started to shift, which was really great. So, I mean, it's good. It's good to see the dialogue shifting. I think action is one of the things that we're looking for. And I mean, you hit it on the head. You said your daughters are 19 and 21 and you told them, you're like, oh, we were talking about the same stuff when I was going to university or when you were their age. So, you know, what, what needs to change in your view? I mean, obviously there's, there's lots out there, but if there's so much that's still the same, what do you think is, is getting in the way? Well, because I've been giving this a lot of thought over the last several months, I do see it from a systemic perspective and also individual. Um, I think, and I think depending what system you're in, right, if you are in the engineering field, that system is extremely male dominated. Uh, and so what are some of those system changes that need to, to happen to bring more women uh, into engineering. I was meeting with someone a couple weeks ago who um, runs an organization to per, uh, support uh, professionals in the tech uh, industry. And I believe the stat that she shared with me was that women, the ma majority of women tend to leave tech jobs after three years. So that to me is a culture issue. They're not feeling like they're part of, and so they leave, right? So, so I think there's some system, and you can, I mean, the literature talks about the language we use on job postings and what language resonates more with women than men. And so I think there's some, some concrete, tangible changes that can be made. I think, though, a lot of it is attitudes and um, and understanding. And in fact, my sister, who's in Australia, is working on a, um, a proposal for the university that she's in, in HR, to promote more women into higher ed roles, and specifically STEM roles. And she was saying that, I think it was another university, and they had made a conscious choice that for certain roles, a woman would have to fill that role. And uh, the story she tells me is of a man in the conversation getting quite upset about that because that was going to rule him or one of his colleagues out of the competition for that role. And the response that person got was, that is how that has been for many women in academia for many, many years. Wow. Whether, right? So whether it was del deliberate or not, it's happening. So, so that's, I think that's the part of the interesting shift is as more women um, take on leadership roles, there are less roles for men. So how does, and, um, so how do you, yeah, how do you navigate that, right? And um, I'm not saying that shouldn't happen, but it'll cause other tensions in the organization that you need to be aware of, if that so, makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense and, and certainly you know, we see it in a lot of places. I'm, I'm curious though, like who bears the burden of this, um, of, of, having, of driving this change? So on the one hand, we've got, 
uh, we've got lean in the lean in movement, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's amazing book. And, but the, you know, there, but there's, you know, controversy around that as well, because that's like the responsibility then is on women to lean into their career, you know, and the analogy is, well, it's like you're leaning into a very strong headwind. Is there any way that we can shift the wind as opposed to just having women lean in? And so I'm curious, you know, whether it, you know, what the role of men is in, in helping to drive that change. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you're mentioning lean in because uh, the book, How Women Rise by Cheryl or um, Helgeson and uh, Marshall Goldsmith, Sally Helgeson and Marshall Goldsmith, they say the same thing. So that there's the fo forces or the system is so strong. So how do you as an individual woman do what you can do to get to where you want to be, right? I don't know where the burden lies. I think it has to be together. Like it, it can't be one or the other. There needs to be, I think, a recognition that, and the data is there, right? So McKinsey's done a ton of research and organizations that have at least 30% women in senior leadership roles do better on all aspects of organizational performance. Like the data is clear and organizations that are inclusive, not only gender, but also ethnicity do even better. And yet we can't seem to figure that out <laughs> because I think at the end of the day, someone has to give something up and who's it going to be? Probably a man. Yeah. I mean, that, that might be true. I wonder though, like, does it have to be a zero sum game necessarily? I mean, if it's true that organizations become more profitable when they have, you know, better gender and diversity, then, you know, can that profitability help drive more leadership role? I mean, I'm, it's because it's interesting for it to become this polarized debate where it's like, well, someone's got to give something up. I, I have a hunch that you're probably right, but I wonder, um, is, hmm. is there more to it? Like, is there a way for it to be, not necessarily uh, equal, but is there a way for it to be less polarizing and less like, well, if you win, I lose, I win, you lose. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, Ideally, that would be great, right? <laughs> yes, it's a nice utopia to think about. I mean, you're, I think you're, you're, you're pointing to the stark facts. Like if you're going to move from 15% women in leadership to 30 in the course of a couple of years, yeah, there's going to be some men that are not going to be in leadership roles or not get them. I agreed. Yeah. What about now, the systemic side, though? I mean, that's where you, I mean, you've done so much work on the system side. And this is a, a really interesting area because, you know, the, as the more and more research I do, the more I'm finding that there are these like systemic cultures that exist that are male dominant or masculine dominant. So, for instance, you know, there's a great article by Jennifer Berdahl. I think you actually sent it to me about the workplace as a masculinity contest hmm. where it's like longer hours and take no prisoners and show no emotion. Those become the, the pillars of culture. And so um, most women are not interested. And in fact, most men aren't either in playing that game. So they, they leave or, they, or they're just not successful in climbing the ladder. And so how do you start to address some of the systemic changes, which I think like that seems to be the next step. Mm -hmm. Well, 
I guess if I think about it kind of in parallel to what we did when we purposefully tried to shift corporate culture at MPI is um, we spent a lot of time talking about behaviors. Um, and I think maybe not explicitly, but also attitudes. So if there's certain types of behaviors that you expect of your leaders and your employees, there's attitudes that will go along with them. And I don't, I would have to think this through and I don't have a recipe for it, but if you're, if you're wanting to have an inclusive work environment, what are the behaviors or the competencies that enable that to happen? And actually, I did some research on this for something else not that long ago. And Deloitte's done some, some research on that. And if, um, some of the competencies they talk about for an inclusive leader are things like courage. So having the wherewithal to speak up when you need to speak up, even though you know what you might say isn't going to be <laughs> well-received or appreciated. Um, Another one is cognizance, like being aware of our own um, attitudes, of our own biases, because I think sometimes we don't even realize that we have them. So that awareness piece, there are a few others that they talked about. So I think that as an organization from a systemic perspective, um, it, it needs to start there. And I think that the senior leadership team needs to be really clear and model those behaviors and exemplify those attitudes. I was really fortunate when I was in the executive um, team, I had a CEO that saw my competency and what I brought to the table and how I could help him be successful. And I never felt like I had to fight to have a voice I never felt like I didn't have his ear. In fact, I had his ear more than him, or he had mine more, whatever. I spent a lot of time with him. Um, but yeah, I think, it's, I think it's around behaviors and attitudes. We can change all kinds of hiring practices, which are important as well. But the day-to-day -day interactions and what happens when you're in the workplace, that's, that's where the rubber hits the road. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what are, what are some of the, um, well, let's start with what are some of the worst examples of the, you know, attitudes and behaviors that, you know, that you see, especially when it comes to the gender side. I mean, not, you know, it doesn't need to be an extreme example, but like, what are, what are some things you've seen? Well, <laughs> It's interesting because some of the reading I've done in the last few months talk about how men and women are socialized so differently. And little boys are socialized to compete and to win. And I'm getting to the answer to your question because I've seen that in certain male leaders that I've worked with. And if that desire to compete and to win is so strong, and often that means it's all about the numbers, those types of leaders don't pay attention to the people in the process. And I've seen that, 
and what that does to morale with those employees and their engagement and their desire to want to do more is totally squashed. So that would be a very general example without <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't need to name names. I mean, I think we can all imagine situations. I've certainly seen them, um, you know, in, in my work. And so it is, but again, it's like, it's that win at all costs mentality yeah. or attitude or behavior. Yeah. That, and, and so, well, what, I mean, I guess I'm curious though, like from a, from a, a, a very successful, powerful uh, female executive perspective, I mean, you spent 10 years in the, in the top ranks at MPI what does that do? Like for, if you know, if you've been socialized as female and you're experiencing this win at all cost thing, what, like you said, morale, but like specifically what, what happens? In terms of the organization or the dynamics between myself and other individuals that are. Approaching? So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, organizationally, if you've got a, you've got a, you know, you've got a lot of women in, in the organization that were socialized a certain way. And now we have a, a you know, a leader or a leadership team in, in the worst example that are this win at all cost mentality. Is this, is this why we're seeing, let's say in STEM, for instance, women leave after three years or like, what is it? Do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that that would likely play into it for sure. Um, you know, the, the, I guess maybe the flip side around uh, some of the research about how girls are socialized and how the girls, girls brains work. We, we tend to see much more about what's going on in our environment than boys or men do. And the brain research they're doing right now is showing that. And I think that as women, if we're attuned to what's going on and seeing this win at all cost, um, you either have to figure out how to navigate in that type of dynamic, you need to figure out how to stand up to it, or you leave. <laughs> right. And, Which and, is and navigation, but navigation in, in my experience can look a lot like, well, if I'm going to navigate, I basically need to adopt a whole bunch of you know, let's say commonly masculine characteristics to succeed. And I think that is hugely problematic when we've, you know, we're forcing, you're forcing someone to adopt this whole almost new personality or set of behaviors that might even be completely contrary to their values just to be able to succeed professionally. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, like a simple example of that is swearing. Say more about that. Well, I think that now I know some women that <laughs> have no problem, right? That's just the way that they communicate. But I think that it's more common in a male-dominated environment to hear swearing at the board table. And in fact, when I was intervie interviewing a couple of men this summer, talking a similar um, conversation as you and I are having, and it was uh, a father and a son. And the father, I would say, is probably in his 70s. And he talked about the first woman who joined a board that he was on. And his comment was, the men around the table thought, we have to stop swearing now. <laughs> but that's an interesting attitude to have. <laughs> right? And my response to him was, well, you don't know me very well because... 
But I'll have to tell you, the higher, and it's interesting that you say that, and as I reflect on it, the higher I got up in the organization, the more I probably swore. So that's just one example, right? Yeah. I tend to have more of a direct approach anyways, so I'm not sure if that was would have influenced me, but um, yeah, something to think about for sure. Yeah, it, I, it's, I mean, the, lang the language piece is big. I mean, there was a, there was a piece on CBC's ideas a couple weeks back about um, studying biblical times, looking at how, how literature was shaped to not have women use language that was overly directive, but that it was, it was typically a deferential language. And it was, I think, the text of Jezebel, where they talked about, this was one of the very first cases where you had a woman who was not using deferential language in a, in a piece of literature. And it was interesting. Like, it's like, wow, this really has a, it's a deep rooted history. That is interesting. Um, yeah. But it's a, I, I guess, you know, well, I know from working with you when you were at MPI, you were able to maintain who you are. You were able to stay true to your values and not have to deviate for the most part into, you know, adopting these overly masculine personality traits uh, while being at the executive table. I mean, it helped. I think you had a, you had okay gender balance at the table. You had a, a, a fairly um, open-minded and certainly, uh, you know, a supportive CEO. But what was the, what was it like? Were you ever, did you ever find yourself getting drawn into like, I, you know, I really got to lean on, you know, male energy here to get through or what was it like? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, cause when I joined the executive team, it was pretty much half and half men, women. Um, I did notice a difference cause by the time I left for probably the last, I don't think it was quite a year. I was the only female on the executive team. And I w I've been trying to think about what it was that was different. And I think a lot of it was um, the type of dialogue or the amount of dialogue before a decision was made. I would say there was more dialogue when there were more women around the table, which aligns with what I've read about brain research and how women and men are wired differently, right? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think. I was, I think I was really, I don't know, I'll use the word fortunate because my portfolio, until it grew and grew and grew, my initial portfolio and the reason I wanted the executive role was to shift corporate culture because that's what I like to do and that's my passion. And I think that when you're in a role where you can fuel your passion and there's a confidence that comes with that. And I didn't back down very often when it came to my own stuff, especially when I knew that what I was saying was going to work or that it was right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were right a lot of the time, which is good. That helps your track record. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, and you know, it's interesting because some other reading I've been doing uh, the last few months is around confidence. And they do say that 
women or anyone, I guess, tend, we tend to, um, whether you say lean in or act upon or speak up when we're, when we're talking or doing something that is true to our core and we believe in, and that gives us confidence. So I reflected a lot upon the role that I had on the executive team. And I knew I didn't have everything right, but for the most part, I knew what I felt we needed to do in the area of leadership and behaviors and culture and organizational change. And um, yeah, there, there weren't any men around the table that were going to sway me differently. <laughs> no, no. And I think you had, you, know, you had a supportive executive team as well. Yes, I did. I did. Um, so, you know, you, you were overseeing this organizational change, uh, you know, for the better part of a decade at MPI. Um, you know, I'm curious, how did you see, let's, we'll call it toxic masculinity. So, you know, that kind of win at all costs or, or, um, you know, take no prisoners type attitude. How did you see that showing up in, in your organization? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, because the senior, when I went in, because the senior leadership was committed to supporting people through change, and while we definitely wanted to make our numbers and, you know, get projects done on time, on budget, and all that good stuff, I always felt that there was a commitment to looking after the people in the process. I think that was really strong. And I'm trying to think of an example around this toxic masculinity that you were referencing and the win at all cost piece. I think the win at all cost um, happens sometimes when projects had gone too long, the money was running out. So we were just gonna freaking get it done and do what you needed to do to get it done. And uh, that definitely happened at times, and there was definitely a lot of pressure on certain leaders and project teams to get that done. Um, and then because of the work that I did with my teams, we ramped it up in terms of how do we take care of people while this is all happening. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think you're, what I'm hearing in your answer is that you were at the helm of a, a cultural shift that really didn't have, um, let's say, a lot of the commonly negative attributes of a, let's say, a male-dominated culture. And that might just be a great thing. You might, you might have just, you, you know, you came into a great organization. Yeah, and I perhaps. I mean, there are a couple things right that were significant. When I joined MPI, the president and CEO was a woman. Yeah. So. <laughs> Right, which I think made a big difference. Um, and she uh, made sure that there was uh, representation at the executive level. And we worked hard to create more, to put more women in leadership roles at the director and senior manager level. That was a definite focus in the organization. Well, when, hang on a second. When you say you worked hard to bring women into those, what did you do? I'm curious. Well, when roles became available, 
right? There may have been a choice to put a woman in the role. Maybe not, we wouldn't have put it on paper that that's what we're doing, but it was definitely part of the conversation. Um, and they were capable of doing the jobs. They um, just had never maybe been given the opportunities because, you know, of the system and stuff. Um, yeah. Now, I have to be careful with this conversation and thinking because I was one of the women that kept moving up. Yeah. Like I moved up very, very quickly. And so my experience was probably a lot different than other women in the organization. And I'm sure there were women and probably still are today that would like to have different roles, but feel like they haven't been given opportunity. So I don't want to paint this rosy picture because I'm coming at it from my lens as well, right? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you're painting a rosy picture. I mean, we want your perspectives. I mean, you, you're an incredibly successful executive uh, for a number of years. You, you're, even, even as you were on the executive team, your portfolio grew and grew and grew because mm -hmm. you were so good. Um, and so you've got a lot to share. I think you make an interesting point, though, because there may be others that, you know, that disagree. But also, you worked, you worked in a place that, had some, some of the right ingredients for a more inclusive culture. So work-life balance, my experience was in working with your organization. Yeah, it was celebrated. So which makes it, which makes it you know, if women are going to uh, have children, it makes it a lot easier for them to do that, take that on. I think it is yeah. also, maybe not. I yeah, I don't know about that work-life balance as you got into management. <laughs> really? Okay. No. Now, if you would talk to my husband or my children, yeah, they would. I put in a lot of hours, a lot of hours, and, and I made choices. I made choices that I was not going to miss my children's sporting events because that was important for me to be there, and I made choices to be available emotionally for them, and I made choices not to worry about not having baked food items in the house, but I bought them instead and things like that. I chose where to put my time at home because I definitely put in a lot of time at work. Okay. Yeah. That's, a, you know, that's interesting that you say that. You know, I, I think as an executive, there's an expectation that you're going to put in those extra hours. But you're saying even as soon as you move into a management position, potentially, that's going to be it. Um, potentially. And part of that is the way I'm wired, right? I'm a firstborn, I'm driven to achieve. And uh, even as I'm building my own business, as I get more and more clarity, I'm spending more and more time on it, right? I, my, my dad is a self-made businessman. So that was my role model growing up. So I think we have to be careful too around gender and also socialization and personality type. Because I know other women that work a ton of time, and that's that's just how they roll. Yeah. And yeah. there's other men that, and I would say I've seen more men, I would say in their 30s in particular with their younger children, that are mean, being more deliberate about spending time with their families and not working insane hours, which is good. It is, and I think that, to me, like that's one of the attitude and behavior shifts that that we need more of, but yeah. it's not, I don't, you know, I think one of the, one of the interesting pieces of research I came across is that when you have a, let's say, 
you know, a, a more toxic or, you know, a toxic masculine workplace that's, you know, very much take no prisoners, you know, work as long as you can, winner take all mentality. Most people, men, women, otherwise, do not like it. Mm-hmm. The difficulty they have is they believe that everybody else likes it and thinks it's good. And so mm. they're afraid to speak up. And I, I wonder if that's the difference maker. I mean, now you're seeing, you said, you know, you're, you're seeing it. Certainly I'm seeing it in, in my coaching work. A lot more men, you know, taking on responsibilities that traditionally were um, what, they're, what a woman would take on, especially around child rearing and being around the house and doing it in an open way. But I don't know if that's the norm. Yeah, I don't think we're there yet. You know, this is making me think about a conversation I had with uh, a woman about a month ago. We met for breakfast. She's a lawyer. Um, is doing a lot of work in the community, not necessarily practicing law. Really smart woman. We were talking about this type of thing and how more men are taking paternity leave and more men are watching how many hours they work, just what we talked about. And she made an interesting comment to say, isn't it interesting that... Perhaps some of the systemic shifts or changes that are going to be made in the workplace, which will benefit women, may occur because of the changes that men are making. Well, that's, that is the crux of you know, why we're even talking is because I'm trying to figure out and, and explore like what is that role? Because I believe there's a huge one. I mean, if it was largely men that created the systemic challenges we're facing right now and that are, you know, in essence, let's say creating the kinds of cultures where women are like, I don't want to even be around that, let alone try to climb the ladder, then, you know, what does that, what, what does it look like? And it's, a, I think it's an important one. It's, mm-hmm. a, good, it's a good example, um, but it's only one thing. And I, I think there's yeah. a lot more, a lot more to do. And especially depending on the industry, that you work in and, you know, some, some is going to be worse than others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before I was talking about this, we were talking about the systemic issues. I do think there's also an individual um, responsibility. Like I do believe um, that if you're going to be in a leadership role, you need to be prepared to show up to do that role. Right. And to really lead and it's hard work. And so while there's definitely, I think, system changes, I think that there's also personal work that men and women can do so that organizations are stronger and more successful. So say more about the, on the personal work side. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when I think back to some of the individuals that I had the honor to mentor during my time at MPI and especially around the women and some of the coaching I've been doing recently with uh, women uh, professionals who are, you know, well, well accomplished. A lot of it comes down, I think, to confidence and um, believing that we can do what we want to do. And, um, And then also giving opportunity, like especially at MPI, I tried to give um, certain individuals that I was working more closely with access to different leaders 
or access to different conversations so that they could better understand the organizational context, that they could uh, develop relationships with individuals so that they would be seen as, you know, competent professionals that have something to offer. Um, I think that's some of the work that we need to do. And, and it's interesting because uh, the research is showing that women tend to do that for others more than men do. And it's one of the strengths that women bring to leadership. And it's an organizational competency that is starting to be identified as something that's required for organizations to be successful. It's about growing your talent. So what is, you know, in a, in a peer-to-peer or a mentoring type of role, what does growing your talent look like? Well, I think it starts with um, finding out what the individual wants to do. And do they want to grow? And where do they want to grow? And what are their career aspirations? I think with that, though, um, there's also opportunity to influence because sometimes individuals don't see the strengths or the capabilities or the potential that they have. And um, I mean, I remember very clearly someone having coffee with me because she wanted to move into HR and do a certain role in HR. Basically, she wanted to get out of where she was <laughs> at yeah. that point. Yeah. And, um, and I sat there and I listened to her and thought about what she was doing in the organization. I said, you know what? That's not the role for you. I think you need to consider this other role. Long story short, she ended up in this other role and has excelled and done great ever since. So I think, think it's a combination of finding out what the individual desires, but also to put your two cents into that in terms of what you see is what someone could do, because we don't always see that. And then it's about setting up the plan, right? So whether it's, I mean, it's the shtick that everybody knows, whether it's formal education or professional development. But as we know, that's only what, 10 or 30% of how we learn. So how do, you, how do you set people up in the organization to be exposed to things and to do work maybe that will stretch them and all that good stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's, I think it starts with a conversation though. And you're, what you're saying is, you're saying the research is, is showing you that women are now doing that in a, in a greater number than men. They're actually having those mentoring conversations, building those networks. Um, I mean, you, and, and now you're running a, a coaching business, coaching women in leadership primarily. So you must mm-hmm. be seeing it all, all the time and you're helping create it. Yeah, the other piece around the research, right, is that women are so relational. We like to be in relationships with others. More, not that men don't, but women tend to do that more. And the, the Red Chair networking event that I put together in the fall and that I'm going to launch again in the new year. It was really interesting because um, the table dialogue that happened after a really inspiring fireside chat with two leaders here in Winnipeg, where those leaders were vulnerable and I was vulnerable at the front of the room, those table conversations were real conversations. And women 
want more because they want to be in relationship with each other where they feel safe and can explore what they do. I think that with the right conditions, men would also want to have that experience. Um, I don't know what the conditions are, but, um, but women definitely want that. And it was interesting because I was talking to someone about red chair, um, a, uh, probably a mid thirties uh, entrepreneur male. And he says, well, why don't you do it as a podcast? Like we're doing. And he said, cause I, I would, would not be apt to get in my car and drive somewhere to sit around a table with a group of people to talk about something, but I would listen to a podcast and I said, interesting, because I think that's one of the key differences between men and women. I said, women want to come together and be in a relationship with other women who lead. Now, so, that's a general statement, but... Well, I mean, I actually believe the same is true to some degree for men. The difficulty is that there's shame around even doing it. Hmm. And so, no, I'm not, you know, obviously there's still very strong, you know, informal male networks and, and, you know, these are the kind of things that can get in the way of women advancing. But the, you know, the idea of, you know, hosting a men's leadership breakfast and, and having a bunch of men show up and, and, and having, you know, that kind of vulnerability, I would love to get to a place where we can do that. But even in my own uh, men's work, uh-huh. you know, and, and doing, doing men's groups, men have shame around even going. Because huh. it's like, oh, I guess that means I'm broken. And it's like, no, it, it, it actually means that you're seeing that there's some blind spots you could be looking at. And other men can really help you do that because they can relate to where you're at. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you that it's, it is a critical part of development. And I see men doing less and less of it or chasing it in the form of, um, it's like, well, going for beers. It's like, well, there may not be the level of vulnerability you need in, in the, you know, the chat in the pub. Maybe there is, you know, I don't want to judge that either, but, um, I, I think that there's some shame around it. And also the idea that you talked about around men in many cases will prefer to do the thing alone, like sitting in their car <laughs> podcasting, as opposed to actually going to the event. Um, and that's another yeah. big general statement, but I think it, it's certainly, I found it to be true in, in the men I coach. Yeah, that makes sense. You, now that you're and you, well, you've been mentoring and coaching for many years, but this has become your business now. If you're looking at, at men in leadership today, what do you think are the big blind spots that, you know, maybe a couple that you, that you continuously are either seeing or you're hearing about from your, your female clients? Well, if I want to generalize, I would say one of the blind spots may be, um, their drive to succeed and how that can negatively impact individuals along the way. So it's focusing on results over, over people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe the a blind spot as well may just be unawareness of your own style and how that impacts others. I mean, there are, and I would say that could be this true, the same for women. There are certain individuals out there that can be very brash and very forward and 
don't really give much thought to how that impacts the other people in the room, nor maybe do they care. <laughs> or maybe they don't care, which is probably a bigger, a bigger problem to be having. Yes. That one yeah. would be the harder one to coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, th- I mean, I think, I think I've seen those, both those traits exist in, in, in men and women, but certainly to a much larger propensity, especially the, that the focus on success at the expense, potentially the expense or not even consideration of the people side. And that may yeah. come back to that brain science you talked about around women being more relationally focused. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Um, like one of the other studies that I read about um, or some research I read about is they talk about how uh, boys are s- socialized to compete on the playground and it's win or lose and girls are socialized and rewarded for keeping the peace. And in the classroom as well, that boys are expected to be rambunctious and kind of push the boundaries. And that's okay, that's just Johnny being Johnny. But if a little girl does that, something's wrong. Because girls don't do that. That, you know, that is so fascinating because I had this conversation. We did parent-teacher interviews with my, with both my daughters, um, who are now eight and 12. And with my 12-year-old, we went and talked to her teacher, and she is one of, I think there are four girls and 18 boys in her, in her class. And her teacher was talking about how great, like she literally gave us that same exact feedback. She said, Naya is so reliable because she is calm and she's collected. And this, this group, as you know, there's 18 boys and there's a lot, it's a lot of rambunctious kids. And so she's really good because she sits down and does her work. I never even thought about it until you just said that, but that's exactly what it is. She's, and so, and I gave her credit for it too. So I'm perpetuating this, this whole thing where it's like, you better not uh, express yourself too much at school or be rambunctious or show any kind of, you know, any kind of energy. Huh. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I would have done the same thing with our girls. Although if I got a sense that they were getting run over, right, or whatever, I'd be like, okay, you need to like stand up for yourself and put other people in their place. And I may have mentioned once or twice they should have actually hit somebody. But <laughs> Well, it's funny. I mean, she actually ended up getting straight A's. And so we we're super proud of her. And so it was, a, it, but it, you know, now you're making me rethink and I'm happy about her marks, but also wondering like, wow, this, this classroom, it really is socializing her to just sit down and, and do her work and not make too much noise, which is not how I want her to be in the world. Right. So that's interesting. Because um, it's okay for boys, right? Yeah. In fact, it's celebrated or not even celebrated, but it's like, well, that's just the way it is. Um, yeah. Okay. So... Shannon, I, I, you know, I'm so grateful for your time on the podcast today. And, uh, you know, you've got such rich insight, both from a you know, practitioner, you know, now you're working as a coach for women in leadership, but all your time, you know, going through this, your own leadership development curve, being, uh, being a female executive, very high powered in a massive organization and really understanding what it means to succeed in that arena. So I appreciate you sharing your views 
And I know that my listeners are going to get a ton out of the interview. And thank you for sharing your thoughts so freely. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to engage. And it was good, good to get me thinking about some things in a different way. So thanks for the opportunity. All right. That is a wrap on episode two of the Men at Work podcast with Shannon Lepke. I will link all of Shannon's info in the show notes. You can check her out. And please hit subscribe and tune in next week for episode number three.